Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This is episode 100 of the podcast. The number 100 is no more or less significant than any other number, but since we live in a mostly base 10 world, it's probably as good a time as any to reflect on the show for a sec. I was asked by a staff member really early on, why are we even doing a podcast? And the truth is, we didn't have a good reason when we started the podcast. It was an experiment. We wanted to iterate. We wanted to see what would happen. We don't have a huge following, and having one has never been the goal. We produce the 107 podcast because we really enjoy doing so. We produce it because we have things to say about the world, about tech, about things we've built, about the people we work with. And most importantly, I think we produce it because there is an abundant supply of really interesting people to talk to. And like Bob Collins said in our last episode, everyone has a story. So thank you, Jonathan, our producer extraordinaire that whips every episode into shape from beginning to end. Thank you to Roxanne for the transcription of every word. And thank you to Charlene for pulling out the highlights and sound bites of every episode. This show would not exist without you guys. And that leads me to my guest today, who is J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji is many things, award-winning chef and food writer, children's book author, restaurant owner, New York Times columnist, popular YouTuber, positive male role model, the list goes on. My wife Susie and I think of him as one of those gifts of COVID. Google's algorithm delivered and suggested one of his point-of-view cooking videos very early on in the lockdown to us, and we've been enamored with the channel ever since. I now own one of those hand blenders and make my own mayonnaise as a result. Kenji, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. So you live in San Mateo, but you grew up uh, on the East Coast in Boston and New York is my understanding. At least that's what Wikipedia says about you. Yes. I also know that you majored in architecture at MIT Right. How how did you get to MIT? What's the origin story of your heritage, your parents? How did that all start out in on the East Coast? Well, my you know my my father is American from Western Pennsylvania. He grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and uh, my mother is Japanese, so she moved to the U.S. Uh, when she was 16 years old. That's the, the Japanese Kenji, um, which is actually my middle name. My first name is James. I ne- I've never gone by James, though. But um, that's where the Japanese first name and the and alt, the German last name. My family, my, so my father was a scientist and my grandfather on my mother's side was a scientist as well. You know, I grew up with my grandparents and my parents. Uh, and so science is just kind of a, a common language of communication and thought within our house. Mm. You know, I, and my mom was sort of a typical Japanese mom. She she pushed us very hard as kids um, academically, and um, you know, made us all practice violin and all those all those things that moms do. I ended up going to MIT because I thought I was going to uh, be a scientist. Biology actually was what my um, my original major was, um, and I had spent a couple summers working in a biology lab in high school, and then summer after my freshman year in college as well. And then by the time I got to sophomore year and I was taking organic chemistry, which is one of the requirements for biology, I really disliked organic chemistry, even even though my grandfather was actually an organic chemist, but I really disliked the class. 
And then it actually made me sort of stop and start thinking about whether I was actually enjoying biology, whether I enjoyed the two summers I had spent working in a lab. Um, and I sort of realized then that I actually didn't really enjoy the process of biology either. The, the lab work wasn't something that I really enjoyed. It was just a little too slow paced. So the summer after my sophomore year, I, when I sort of was not really sure what I wanted to do, I decided not to work in a lab and instead um, spend the summer working as a server, like a waiter at a, at a restaurant in Boston. But I couldn't find a job as a, as a server. What ended up happening was I actually sort of accidentally walked into a job as a cook because one of the restaurants I went to looking for a job as a server said that they had a prep cook who didn't show up that morning. And so they were short one prep cook. And if I could come in that afternoon and start cooking, start doing prep work that I could have a job for the summer. And so that's what I did. Um, I had zero experience in the kitchen. To, you know, I never really thought about working in kitchens. I was, it was just like, oh, okay, well, that's a skill I don't have. That'll be a fun and interesting thing, hopefully fun and interesting thing to do. You know, because I've always enjoyed learning new things and, and learning new skills. And so um, I thought it would be a fun and different thing to do than I'd ever done before. And it was, and it turned out to be something that I actually really loved doing. That's sort of how I fell into cooking. I finished um, MIT with a, an architecture degree. After that summer, I was working part-time in restaurants all the rest of my time at MIT, and then I went straight into it full-time after school, after college. How fortuitous that you would show up and there'd be a line cook job opening and, <laughs> and that you would end up in a career in the food industry. You know, I consider myself extremely lucky, but, you know, I've, I, but it's also one of those sort of like, you, you know, you make your own luck things where it's like the more you, the more chances you take and, and the more you're willing to learn new things and try new things, the higher the likelihood that you're going to stumble on something that you enjoy. It's funny, I, I hadn't really thought about it now, but like, you know, I, I just wrote this children's book um, and the way that happened was also kind of just a very lucky, fortuitous thing. So my, my, my partner in that project, uh, Gianni Ruggiero, who's the illustrator, you know, I had this sort of vague idea. I had a daughter, you know, and she was an infant and I had this vague idea. I, I kind of want to write a story for her because I like kids' books um, and I'm a writer. It was sort of just a vague idea. And then I was like, all right, well, I wonder how that process works. Maybe I'll try and see if I can find an illustrator and we'll, and we'll just kind of mess around with it for a bit. And so I went on Twitter and I, I asked, is there, does anyone know of an illustrator who, who's interested in working on a children's book project with me? And as it turned out, just that morning, my illustrator, my partner, Gianna, she had posted on Twitter like, like a few hours before that, hey, I just lost my job. Does anyone know <sighs> someone who's looking for an illustrator to work with on a new project? Um, and she was like specifically looking for the type of project she hadn't worked on before. And so that, that's basically how we met each other. We just kind of both tweeted looking for each other at the same time. Um, and someone connected us on Twitter. And I, you know, I'd never seen, met her before, but um, it turned out we, we both got along really well. We were both looking for a fun new project that, you know, a new and challenging project in a field that we hadn't worked in before and it totally worked out so it was, it was, a, it was a very lucky thing there too so let's talk about your children's book for a sec uh-huh. it's called every uh-huh. night is pizza night and it just yeah. came out right at the beginning of september yeah exactly this is your second book it's it's not as uh, in-depth as your first book <laughs> <laughs> it's not as long not yeah, as long it's, um... 42 pages compared to 950 pages. <laughs> it's shorter, but it, but it wasn't, it was actually more difficult to write. I mean, I found writing for children to be more difficult than writing for adults. My first book, The Food Lab, you know, that style of writing I've been doing now for, I don't know, 15 years or so, not, maybe not quite 15 years, but, but for a while, well over a decade. I can write cooking articles aimed at adults and food science articles aimed at adults um, 
easily. In your sleep, probably. <laughs> well, in the in the middle of the night, at least, if not in my sleep. But um, <laughs> but you know, finding a voice um, and and figuring out how to write for children was much more challenging than I thought it was going to be. But it's an illustrated children's book, right? And you don't do the illustration, so you have to collaborate with this illustrator, Gianna. Do you tell her what to draw? Do you describe the characters? Do you? Well, how how does that whole process work? Well, you know, when I first went into it, I thought, okay, like I'm, I'm the writer and she's the illustrator. So I guess I'll just, um, you know, at first I was like, I'm going to write everything and I'll, and I, and I have this idea of what it's supposed to look like in my head. And so I'll describe every page in detail, you know, but then after talking with a few other children's book authors, the general advice was no, like you're the writer, she's the illustrator. So let her do the illustrations. Like, don't, don't tell her what to do. That's her job. Like you're, you're good at writing. Mm. They're good at visual things. Like that's the reason why you're collaborating with them. What, what I did was I, I came up with short biographies for each character. So like one paragraph about every character who appears in the book and sort of who they are and where they're coming from. Uh, and then just the words of the book. And so from there, she fills in all the pages, you know, and, and then and then it's a collaborative process. We go back and forth, both on the words and on the illustrations. So she has a lot of input in, in what the words are and the messaging and the story and, and the plot and all that. Uh, and, and likewise, I would give her feedback on the direction of the drawings. It was, it was a very, very sort of collaborative, equal partnership we had, which I, which I found different and different and wonderful. You know, because I'm used to, I'm very used to working alone. Like I work from home. I have for the last several, you know, for the last five years, I've worked from home alone and I do like, I do my writing and take my own photos. So I don't really collaborate with anyone in general on um, writing projects. So this is a very different process, but extremely fun. We have definite plans to do more. I'd love to hear it. Um, I read on your website, you, you have a great about page that's written in both first person and third person. And the third person part I was trying to paraphrase that for myself so that I could give you an intro in the podcast. And what the third person part really opened my eyes to is that you're an author, according to that part of the bio. But mm -hmm. I've seen you on YouTube and I've seen all the work you've like the fact that you have a restaurant and the fact that you are an mm -hmm. amazing cook. Like what? What do you consider yourself? Are you an author? Are you a chef? Are you a business owner? Maybe you're a com maybe you're a complicated mix of all of them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a I'm I would consider myself a writer primarily because you know that's that's sort of that's what I spend most of my time on, and that's where my main my main source of income. Although although you know now like YouTube, it's not what I spend most of my time on, but it but it is becoming sort of like a significant source of my income which is not expected and actually, you know, pretty nice because I have fun doing those videos, um, which means like, you know, it's sustainable to keep doing them. You know, I, I, I guess I consider myself a chef in the sense that I operate a restaurant and I'm in charge of all the food there. I'm not a cook anymore. You know, I, I was a, I was a cook for a long time, but I'm not a cook anymore because I don't actually, you know, most chefs don't actually cook in restaurants except at very small places. Um, so my, you know, my job is more in menu planning and sort of overall direction and operations and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, but yeah, I would I would consider myself a writer more than more than anything. If I had if I had to select one on a census form, it would be writer. How did you end up on the West Coast? Uh, my my wife got a job out here, so after, after we were in, um, you know, I grew up in New York, um, lived in Boston for ten years, and then uh, and then back in New York for five years while my wife was in grad school. And, uh, after grad school, she got a job out here, so we moved out here because I can, you know, I can write from from anywhere and uh she got a job out here so we moved 
pretty 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 straightforward and you wrote the food lab and it came out in 2015 almost a thousand pages six pounds in weight and i love the title the qualifier is the food lab better home cooking through science (laughs) it's been described as a textbook like cookbook with roots in scientific reasoning why did you write this book I wrote the book mainly at the urging of my my partner um, and former boss, Ed Levine. Um, so, you know, I started writing this column called The Food Lab. When I moved back to New York after being a cook in Boston for a while, I was, I was working as a private chef and as a freelance writer. And so I was doing short articles for various you know, newspapers and I was, do, I was editing a remote editor for Cook's Illustrated magazine. And, you know, I had always had this interest in science. And I knew cooking pretty well at that point. So, you know, I sat down with Ed Levine, who is the founder of Serious Eats, a website that at the time was mainly a sort of restaurant review website that would talk about sort of food news and restaurant news. But he was interested in starting a recipes section there. Uh, And so he first approached me um, to see if I wanted to do a weekly column. Um, And it was sort of his idea to do a column on food science. In fact, he even came up with the name The Food Lab. Uh, it sounded like a fun thing to do. And so I said, sure. And I, I, the first article I wrote was um, about boiling eggs. And it was 3,000 words about boiling eggs, which I thought, you know, I wrote it. And I was like, nobody's ever going to read this. And I put it up and then people, you know, people really responded well to it. You know, I kind of kept going. One, one of the, That was sort of one of the nice things about writing online, because I'd been used to writing for newspapers and magazines where you're very limited in space. And most magazines and newspapers are pretty risk averse because they have an established subscriber base. They know what works with there and they have sort of an established voice. And so, you know, when I was working at Cook's Illustrated magazine, every article sounds and behaves pretty similarly, you know? And so even though I was one of, I can remember seven or eight other writers, your, your freedom was a little bit restricted. Well, quite restricted actually, because all the articles had to be the same length. They all had to have that sort of same Cook's Illustrated tone to them. Whereas writing online back then, it was like, I mean, it was, Everything online back then was like the Wild West, you know, it's like, um, where's the money going to come from? How, like, who, who are you writing for? What, like, what, what, what works, what doesn't? The Google algorithm would change, you know, every month. So, you know, so sort of predictability in your audience would, would vary all over the place. Um, it, was, it was really uh, fun and interesting. What it really meant was that when I was writing my columns, I could do whatever mm. I wanted. If there was an audience that liked it, um, great. If there wasn't, then okay, like uh, there's going to be four more articles appearing the same day on Serious Seats. So, okay, so like this one didn't do well. Who cares? Right. You know, that, that, was, that was wonderful for me and the team there, me, Carrie Jones, Aaron Zimmer, Adam Kuban, um, all of whom are, are successful in various, various other fields now as well. You know, all we did was we, we would have meetings and say, and do whatever sounded fun to us, that's what we would do. So it's like, okay, I want to go, hey, I'm in California today. I'm going to go to In-N-Out and order everything on the secret menu. And I'm actually going to get one of the employees to help me find everything on the secret menu. And then I'll write about that. And, and so I would just do that, you know? And it's like, there, like, there was never a no. It was always just like, yeah, it sounds good. And, and it worked really well with, sort of with my general philosophy of, the, the philosophy I've had sort of basically through my whole, um, my whole career, which is that if I'm, you know, I do my best work when I'm passionate about something and when I'm really mm. having fun and when I'm interested in it. So that's going to be sort of what I do. I'm going to do what interests me and I'm going to write about things that interest me. And if um, and by doing that, I know I'm going to be putting out my best work and hopefully people are going to respond to that. 
you know, what I discovered 10 years ago when I started doing with that was that people do respond to it. People like sort of authenticity and passion. So if you bring those things to your to your work, not only does it mean you get to do what you want to do, but it means, you know, if you're lucky, it means that people also are going to find that work interesting or inspiring or, you know, whatever it is. It, it's, it's the same thing I do sort of with my YouTube videos now. It's like, don't, I have no idea how the YouTube algorithm works. You know, people talk about on other channels, they talk a lot about this YouTube algorithm and, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's sort of like how, no idea. <laughs> it's sort of how I, I remember, you know, articles and talking with other editors from other websites back in the early days of the web, where it's like, you know, the Google al algorithm and how do you SEO and getting on the front page and all these things and all these tricks you should be doing to, to making sure that your stuff appears at the, at the top. And, you know, I sort of ignored it then. And, and with YouTube, I sort of ignore it now. I just, I just do what I want to do, um, put out the best content I can um, the, and the stuff that I'm interested in. And then, you know, hope that people will hope that the people at Google or, or YouTube or wherever are who are writing the algorithm are good enough at writing it that my content will make its way in front of the people who want it. I think it's working. I think it's working. I have no idea why the video that um, I saw of yours the very first time showed up in our stream. And I say our stream because we use an Apple TV to kind of watch TV mm -hmm. together as a family, and it's my account. So <laughs> my family has all of their own preferences on that Apple TV. So I think the algorithm's actually really confused <laughs> because it has, you know, teenage preferences, my wife's preferences, my preferences, but it showed up and it was the video that you did with Cacio de Pepe, I think. Okay. It was that salt and, or the pepper, pepper uh, and cheese. the pepper yeah, pasta. pasta pepper yeah, cheese. the pepper pasta. And I tried making that. I was so inspired, totally failed, but I, it didn't matter. Like, <laughs> I, subscri I subscribed and it's been great. And so now I'm, I'm the resident expert on eggs and <laughs> how to buy them in the grocery store because of one of the videos you made, which was the one about how the eggs have the Julian date, uh -huh. the carton has the Julian date printed on right. them. And those are probably the most fresh that you should, you should be buying the ones with the Julian date that have the highest number. Right. I guess my question in this extremely long preamble <laughs> is to ask you, did you figure that out? Or did you, or did someone tell you, or how did, how do you know that that's, how did you figure that out? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's, it's not exact, it's not um, publicized knowledge. So, so what you're referring to on, on every carton of eggs, there's a little three digit number that goes from zero to 360, uh, sorry, three, zero to one to 365 or zero to 364. I can't remember, but, uh, but uh, anyway, that number, yeah, represents the date that the eggs were packed in that carton. Um, which is which in general correlates to the, the date that the eggs were laid. Um, so the higher that number, other than when you're going over the new year, but the higher that number, right. the fresher the eggs are going to be in general. When I was writing my book, my first book, you know, the first chapter is all about eggs. And so there's a huge sort of Q&A section about eggs. I'm, I'm sure I came across it in my research probably on like the USDA website or, um, or the Egg Council's website. Uh, it's not like hidden secret knowledge. It's just not something that the egg companies necessarily advertise. There's a lot of things on packaging that are useful for stocking shelves and for supermarkets for keeping track of things, keeping track of things and keeping track of freshness, um, as well as the manufacturers that aren't necessarily advertised to the public. But a lot of that information is just there on the cartons, as long if you know where to look. Do you think a, a certain manufacturer would have a competitive advantage on another if they use that in their marketing? Because I, for sure, like if. If I saw the number that was like big and bold and I didn't have to look through all the cartons in the, in my, mm -hmm. in the co-op, I mean, I'd be more likely to buy those. 
I doubt it in this specific case because eggs actually last a very, very long time, like longer than you would expect them to. Like, you know, an egg after it's laid, it'll 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 last at least a few months without going bad. Um, and so I would what I would worry about as a manufacturer is that I think most people don't know that, you know, the eggs that they're buying are probably um, a few weeks old already by the time they're buying them at the mm. supermarket. Um, and that but they're still going to last even longer after that. So what I'd be worried about was that. If if I if I was a manufacturer and I put this date on it, hey, this was the date these eggs are packed. People are going to go, oh, that's like two weeks ago. I'm going to go with these other eggs. They're probably <laughs> fresher. Whereas two weeks is actually probably about as fresh as you are going to find um, on the supermarket shelf. I think it would actually end up hurting sales if if you were to public if you were to publicize the um, you know re- really promote the, the date that they were packed. Well, good because now I feel like I have secret info. <laughs> we we did a test at home with the eggs we had in our fridge and eggs that I bought that were mm-hmm. more recent, and we tried to make poached eggs just like you had suggested. And the ones that were fresher absolutely were a, a million times better than the ones that weren't that were yes. still in the fridge. So, yeah, fresher eggs generally hold their shape a little bit better. So you're working on a book now. About wok cooking, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And is the format of the book going to be similar or different to the food lab, or what can you tell us about the book? The format will be similar, so it'll be it, it'll have recipes in it, you know, some, around two hundred, two hundred fifty recipes right now is the, what the count is at right now. Wow. But it's it, you know like like the food lab, it's less about the specific recipes and more about sort of the te- underlying technique and science because i think you know understanding technique and science is is really what allows you to sort of cook more freely in the kitchen and really be more expressive and and work with leftovers and 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 bring what you have in your head um, you know to life on the stovetop it in, it's similar to the food lab in that it's yeah it's it's really technique and science focused and not so much not necessarily recipe focused um although if all you want to do is follow recipes they're in there as well it'll also be you know similar in format in that these the chapters are broken down by technique you know so it's not like there's not like a chapter on chicken and a chapter on pork but rather there's going to be a chapter on using your wok as a for deep frying there's one on um, smoking steaming grazing um, stir frying there's a there's a chapter on rice um, and, and all the things you can do with rice um, so you know it's, it's really broken down more by um, general sort of cooking principle and technique yeah and and it's not quite as long i mean who knows how long it'll be in the end but but most likely not 950 pages but <laughs> And six and a half pounds. But it's growing more every day, so who knows? Like a few hundred pages at least, um, for sure. That's awesome. I'm I'm looking forward to getting it and seeing it on the shelves. Yes, I'm I'm looking forward to it too. I've been working on it for a while. I'd love to talk about Worst Hall, the beer hall uh, restaurant you have in San mm-hmm. Mateo. What's the genesis of Worst Hall? How did that come idea come to pass? My partners they owned a beer a uh, beer and wine bar together. A spa- the space where Worstall is now was opening up. They had been in business for seven years before Worstall, um, and so they were ready to take on a new project. And so they, it was actually their idea to open up a restaurant and to make it a beer garden. Because partner Adam has a very sort of deep knowledge of beer, both um, you know domestically, um, the, all all the California breweries and West Coast breweries in, imports, and and a beer garden seems sort of like a natural thing because you know San Mateo, the demographic was shifting to being a lot more sort of younger families um, as well as people interested in beer. So that atmosphere, family-friendly atmosphere with a focus on beer seemed like a, a natural thing to do in the area. Um, they approached me about consulting, um, which is something I had done in the past with other restaurants. So I said, sure. 
you know, and then I mentioned on Twitter that I was working on this project. Um, and when I did that, I got a call from someone at Eater. I can't remember who the reporter was, but someone at Eater who said they wanted to interview me about this um, beer hall project. So I talked about it. But the way they wrote that article that like the headline was like, Kenji Lopez Alt is opening a restaurant. And which wasn't really at the time, I was just a consultant. And then Eater kind of was like, no, this is Kenji's restaurant. And I was like, oh, crap, I guess I'm I'm I guess crap. I'm opening a restaurant. And, you know, and there was a really there was really good response. So, you know, I sat down again with my partners who both of them said, yeah, well, maybe you should, maybe since everyone thinks this is your restaurant now, you should be one of the partners and get a little more involved. And uh, that's that's how it happened. Um, it was kind of I was kind of forced into it. It was. It's been a uh, definitely been a learning experience. Not necessarily an experience I would repeat. I, I, I don't regret it, but I, I, you know, I definitely, I don't, I don't have plans to go full time into another restaurant anytime soon because I, I, I have a lot, of, a lot of other projects I want to work on first. It sounds like it happened fortuitously, just like you ended up being that line cook in Boston. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think a lot of it just has to do again with me. It's sort of being within my personality to just say yes to things, um, especially things that uh, that I think I'm going to, you know, learn from or, or a new experience for me. So, you know, when they approached me, I said, "Yeah, okay, sounds fun," and uh, and kind That's of went awesome. from there. That's really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. So it's, you guys closed pretty early on in the lockdown back in March. Um, and then... Yeah, we actually closed pre-lockdown. Pre-lockdown. The day, the day before the lockdown was official, we, we decided internally decided to close because we... Yeah, mainly because of staff. We didn't... Um, we, we felt we, you know, we, we couldn't put our team at risk. Yeah, you know, we had, we, had been, we had started doing indoor dining with distance seating. But even then, it didn't feel completely safe. So we, yeah, so we decided to close down completely. You know, just recently, San Mateo started, County started allowing indoor dining again. But we don't currently have any plans to re resume indoor dining. Again, because we have enough outdoor dining space that, you know, in California, Bay Area, we're lucky enough that people can eat outdoors pretty much year round. Um, and we've sort of got operations to the point where we're basically at maximum capacity um, as far as um, staffing density can go. You know, if we were to put another person, another cook on the line, they would have to be standing closer to each other than six feet. And so we figure, all right, like, well, we're, we're at maximum capacity as far as uh, staffing density can go. And we, we have a good customer base right now. So it's working out for us now. So we don't really have any reason to open up the indoors, which would only put people at risk again. And, and you know, we're really we really want to be careful about that. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask about is how the crowds have changed. And it sounds like you're doing well with having crowds outside and you're putting people uh, in your thoughts and you're being careful about it. feels like every industry's changed with the, with the pandemic. And it's really made a lot of people in a lot of industries rethink how they do business and how, how they operate. So what aspects of what's changed in your industry do you think will remain after the virus goes away? Well, and it's it's a hard question to <laughs> answer, I think. But you know, so there's been a trend in the restaurant industry for a long time toward casual dining, um, and this is something that people, you know, chefs have been seeing since around two, you know since the the um, financial crisis of 2008. Restaurants have been shifting and from sort of fine dining and full service to more casual dining and, and, and fast casual service. And I think one thing that this has done is forced a lot of places that were sort of running on momentum before into completely rethinking their operations. You know, because right now, sort of full service dining is just not, it's not really an option for most places. Certainly not an option for us. 
And so I think that's one thing that that might that might change. Permanently. It's definitely going to change permanently for us. You know, we we've really streamlined our menu and changed our service style to accommodate the current situation. But it also turns out that for us, that it's a more efficient, better business that way anyway. So this is something that we plan on keeping, even even if we were to fully open again, we would change the volume of customers we can serve and hopefully hire back mm. um, some of the staff that um, we've had to lay off because we have, you know, because we just don't make the revenue we used to um, and, and because of safety. But our, our service style, I think, is not going to change back to what it used to be, um, which is actually a good thing for us um, business wise. You know, the, one of the real big changes I think we're going to see is that a lot of restaurants aren't going to survive this. I think we are, but who knows how long this is going to last. But um, a lot of restaurants aren't going to survive this. And and the ones that do are going to tend to be the, you know, the bigger chains and the ones with the deeper pockets and who can sort of weather the storm without the same level of revenue, which means that I think the restaurant landscape, um, you know, once, once we find a vaccine and things start, hopefully start to get back to normal, the restaurant landscape is going to look really different from what it did before. Um, I think we're going to have fewer mom and pops and fewer um, independent locations and more of the big chains that are going to step in and, and scoop up some of those places that mom and pops used to be. That's sad. That's sad for me to hear. And I, like, I've seen all the restaurants that have made it in the Twin Cities here where I am and those that haven't and those that are weathering the storm. And, and I, I miss the ones that have gone out of business. And I feel yeah. like I feel helpless because there was nothing really that I could do to keep them no. around, even though we, you know, try to buy gift cards and try to order the delivery service. And it, it's, it's not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. And, you know, even even gift cards are really, you know, gift cards are useful short term. But but really, a gift, a gift card is just a way of putting off debt until later, because at some point that gift card has to get redeemed anyway. But. Yeah, it's it's not an easy. There's no easy solution. <laughs> no, I hope I hope all those people and all the people with that and all the skills they have, I hope they land somewhere else and do something else. I know people are resilient and and um and they'll figure it out. But I feel like I feel like we have to be doing more as a society to support them, and and government should be doing more as well to support them. And I, yeah, I don't. I mean, just keep eating out and doing what you can. I suppose to support right. them. On one of your videos, you have a mat, mm-hmm. and when you look down, it says, people who live in fear are destined to have uncomfortable feet. Oh, right. <laughs> what, what does that uh, that's, mean? I couldn't you know, figure that, was that a, out. Something a viewer sent in. You know, I was, um, <laughs> in some of my earlier videos, you know, I, I, I cook at home, and I cook the way I walk around at home, which is embarrassing. You know, I grew up in a J- Japanese household, and, and it's customary to not wear any shoes in the house. Um, and so I, I, I don't wear, we don't wear shoes in our house. And I, I and so I cook in bare feet when I'm at home, um, obviously not at the restaurant, but when I cook at home, I'm in bare feet. And sometimes people comment, you shouldn't be frying in bare feet because you're going to burn your feet. Or what if you drop a knife on your foot? So I think in some video, I just said, you know, like if I drop a knife on my foot, well, you know, I, you know, I can't, I can't live in fear of that. People who, I, well, I don't remember what the exact quote is, but it, but it's, it's something, something about, about how. I'd rather have the comfort of my, you know, of no shoes on than worry, worry constantly about hurting uh, my feet. And so one of my, one of my viewers actually made that kitchen mat and sent it to me. It was a, it was a gift from a viewer. 
That's awesome. You have to be pretty thick-skinned on the internet these days. And one of the things I really appreciate is that you don't give a shit, if I may say <laughs> so, when 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 people leave nasty comments or they think that you don't do things a certain yeah. way or like you don't you don't care. And I love that. And you empower people to just do what they love. And I I think that's a really great quality. <laughs> I mean, you know, I do, you know, from my my days as an editor at, at Quixel. You know, one of the lessons I learned there is that a comment section is only as good as the moderator allows it to be. And so, you know, I'm I'm not one of these. I mean, I do go on like Reddit and I browse Reddit and whatever. Um, and I and I understand some people's philosophy. It's like, oh, there should be free speech. Don't delete any comments. Don't moderate comments. If people want to be jerks, they'll be jerks. You know, what I find is that most of the time, left to their own devices, people on the internet, especially behind anonymous usernames. The, the comment sections will devolve. The, um, mm -hmm. And even people who are generally could be nice people in real life and nice and empathetic in real life get sucked into these, you know, back and forth, ever devolving um, conversations on, on the internet. Um, and so ever since my days at Serious Seats, you know, I've read a few um, essays and articles about the subject of comment moderation, um, comment section moderation. And so at Serious Seats, the philosophy was, yeah, we're going to, you got to be nice to each other. Here are our basic rules. Like if you start no ad hominem attacks, no cursing, no, no, no being mean to each other. And if you start doing that, um, we're just going to delete your comment. And that's sort of what I do on my YouTube channel also. So, you know, people will sometimes tell me, oh, you have like this, you have such a positive, great comment section. It's just nice to be able to have a conversation here as opposed to, you know, like, Twitter or Reddit, where it's just people insulting each other. Um, and the reason that that's the case is because I is because I, I pretty carefully monitor comments. And if someone starts to get nasty, then I don't delete comments because I disagree with them. I disagree. I delete comments because they're of, hateful. Yeah. And I, and I think that's if, if you want to have positive discussions with people that that's almost a necessity um, in a modern comment section. So you know, I, but you know, like you said, as far as the content that I put out, um, sometimes I'll make political statements on my various platforms because I don't think it's possible to avoid politics these days. And I don't, and I don't think people should be avoiding no. politics these days, given what's going on. And, and people will be like, tell me to stay in my lane or let's like, you, you know, you're, you're a cook. Just talk about, just, just shut up and cook. You know, that's the get back in the kitchen. That's the, that's the thing people say, so rude. <laughs> you know, but it's like, so rude. at least in our country, you know, politics is everybody's domain. I mean, you know, we have, we have a reality show, TV show host as, as the president, you know. Yes, we do. You know, so I, I have no trouble voicing my opinion um, on my own channels. And, and if people tell me to shut up, I, it just makes me want to do it more. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate your time today. I've been inspired by your channel to spend more time in the kitchen. I thank you for that. I thank you for inspiring me. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast and for spending your time with me today. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt is not only the author of New York Times bestseller The Food Lab and a new children's book called Every Night is Pizza Night, but is also the chef and a partner at Worst Hall in San Mateo, California. You can find him online at KenjiLopezAlt.com. And he's on Twitter and Instagram as at Kenji Lopez Alt. And be sure to check out his YouTube channel as well. You'll find the link in the show notes of this webpage. 
You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com/podcast and if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.